Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. And welcome to Teddy Talks for May 4th, 2020. And indeed, as my uh, feed, as they say, has told me, may the 4th be with you. We're looking forward to a great week here at Teddy Talks. We've got everything from Theodore Roosevelt accepting the Nobel Peace Prize in Os uh, Christiana, now Oslo, Norway, in 1910, to uh, his remarks May 6th, 1903, when he first saw the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River in Arizona Territory. And in those remarks as well, remembering his Rough Riders from Arizona. We are thankful today on May 4th for rains that fell in the evening of May 3rd and the morning of May 4th. Seeing friends here in Medora on Sunday, one uh, noted that in a phone call with his father back down on the ranch in Nebraska, the father now hires a young local farmer to put the crops in and and Father's take, as it very often is this time of year, was was uh, hopeful in that uh, they got the crops in before the rain. Now they're waiting for the rain. We were waiting for the rain here. Uh, things are going to green right up, as they often do. The, the first wildflowers start to bloom along the trails, as they have along the Matahay, a wonderful 100-plus mile dirt bike and horse and hiking trail that runs along the Little Missouri River here and has had quite a rebirth in uh, recent years with our uh, wonderful friends uh, uh, from Watford City leading the charge there. We've got some wonderful things uh, on this date in history. Uh, we'll uh, hit upon some dates in TR's history, but, but every now and then, uh, perhaps not getting too close to our modern controversies, but to remind ourselves of where we've been in the past. Uh, on this date in 1886, the Haymarket Square riots uh, some uh, refer otherwise to the Haymarket Square Massacre. Tremendously important in the history of uh, the relationship of uh, America and its labor forces uh, to, uh, uh, to society, uh, to the justice system. All the way uh, up to 1970 on this date. Uh, elsewhere, it's being remembered that this is the 50th anniversary of the uh, uh, shooting of the students at Kent State University in Ohio members of the Ohio National Guard uh, 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 doing the shooting on that day and a difficult time for the uh, for the nation. And to realize that uh, in some days later, just thereafter, uh, I didn't realize this history, hadn't remembered the uh, 
hard hat riots uh, in New York City, a confrontation between anti-Vietnam War protesters and some of the more conservative labor unions uh, involved in that particular incident. So we'll uh, uh, perhaps a review a bit of uh, Theodore Roosevelt on the Haymarket riot. It occurred when he was a, a young man and, and in his, his what would turn out to be his final active year of uh, being a rancher here. And, and then also, of course, uh, uh, on the eve of his own attempt to be elected president or mayor of New York City, uh, a great labor city. Let's go back on this date in history to May 4th, 1780. That is the founding in Massachusetts of the American Academy of Arts and Science, founded in Boston. Uh, James Bowden, uh, the uh, namesake of Bowden College, John and Samuel Adams, John Hancock. Uh, TR would be elected to membership in this august body. It's, it's on the tradition of the old academic academies of Europe, but uh, embraces uh, literature and, and art and uh, its members. This last year is still ongoing. It's headquartered now in Cambridge, Mass, and uh, they inducted 12 new members in the class of 2020. Uh, those are some fascinating people uh, uh, from arts and literature. Uh, I took a quick look at the modern day uh, website. No website in 1898 when Theodore Roosevelt and 147 of his colleagues were inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. This is 1898, I'll be interested to find out exactly where in that very busy year uh, this uh, nomination and election occurred. I think wonderful for Theodore Roosevelt, as you look through some of the names of that august class, uh, his friends in literature, Henry Adams, John Burroughs, that uh, amazingly complex relationship with Samuel Clemens. Uh, in art, uh, the sculptor da Daniel Chester French, Charles Dana Gibson, the painter, now back to literature, John Hay and the dear friend from Massachusetts himself, Henry Cabot Lodge. By this time, they had these two published Hero Tales, a wonderful compendium. The only book I think technically that we would say was co-written amongst the TR collection. We're going to enjoy Hero Tales later. TR's friend, uh, Frederick Remington, and his uh, friend and compatriot, Augustus St. Gaudens. You know that uh, sculptor, he and TR collaborated on uh, designing new 10 and $20 gold pieces. There was no congressional authorization to do that. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt told Augustus St. Cadenz that it was a crime for which he would be willingly impeached, uh, for it was criminal that we had such ugly coins and, and uh, 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 liberty, uh, winged liberty, I think, is the key factor in the uh, design by Augustus St. Cadenz. On this date, May 4th, 1796, the birth of Horace Mann in Franklin, Mass, uh, American educator, author, and editor who pioneered public schools. Theodore Roosevelt believed in public schools. I know the, uh, uh, the, the concept of public education and, and uh, how we might make it uh, the best and better. My own analysis is, and, and uh, familiar with some of our comparisons with other countries in the world, Boy, we get tertiary education great. We get universities done so well that people come from throughout the world. Uh, that we're well challenged, though, um, uh, and, and in the public schools to make sure that each and every child uh, meets their best. So thank you to our teachers and to our parents who work uh, with and through the public school system to give our children the best education they can. Horace Mann is still being taught in our schools of education. On this date, May 4th, 1814, the Battle of Fort Ontario, Oswego, New York. 
1814 went better than uh, some of the other uh, uh, years uh, uh, with regards to America's capability of defending itself uh, on the lakes uh, in this country uh, against the British. Uh, we had uh, ab abortive, unsuccessful, quite disastrous attempts uh, up in the north uh, uh, along the lakes with regards to the activities of our army, depending upon a militia that was very ill-organized, as Theodore Roosevelt would remind us. But remember that uh, amongst Theodore Roosevelt's early works was a naval, the Naval War of 1812, and uh, well-reviewed and, and uh, pretty quickly adopted by the Royal uh, Naval Academy in uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, every ship in the United States Navy was uh, required to have a copy on shipboard. I think that order came before Theodore Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy or President of the United States. But uh, I'd like to uh, just give you a little sample of from that work, Naval uh, War of 1812, what Theodore Roosevelt wrote. Uh, the uh, British Navy and the American Navy had spent the winter of 1813-1814 constructing new vessels uh, to uh, take the task of battles on the lakes. And on Lake Ontario, uh, this was done under the uh, auspices of uh, our uh, commander there, Chauncey. Theodore Roosevelt did not think much of uh, Chauncey and uh, Chauncey's opponent uh, on Lake Ontario was Yao, I believe is how you would pronounce the, uh, the uh, British Admiral's name. But let's take you up, up to uh, the battle. Uh, quoting from Theodore Roosevelt's writing, so. This year, the British architects outstrapped ours in the pace for supremacy, and Commodore Yao put out of port with his eight vessels long before the Americans were ready. His first attempt was a successful attack on Oswego. This town is situated some 60 miles distant from Sackett's Harbor and is the first port on the lake which the stores sent from the seaboard to Chauncey reached. Accordingly, it was a place of some little importance, but was very much neglected by the American authorities. It was insufficiently garrisoned and was defended only by an entirely ruined fort of six guns, two of them dismounted. Commodore Yao sailed from Kingston to attack it on the 3rd of May, having on board his ships a detachment of 1,080 troops. Oswego was garrisoned by less than 300 men, chiefly belonging to a light artillery regiment and a score or two of militia. They were under the command of Colonel Mitchell. The recaptured schooner Growler was in port with seven guns destined for the harbor. She was sunk by her commander, but afterward raised and carried off by the foe. On the 5th, Yao appeared off Oswego and sent in Captain Collier and 13 gunboats to draw the fort's fire. After some firing between them and the four guns mounted in the fort, two long 24s, one long 12 and one long six, the gunboats retired. I've just come about an idea. We're going to save the rest of that. We've set you up out of the action of the third and the fourth. I'm remembering now the uh, the action culminates on the 5th. There's a little teaser from the Naval War of 1812. There's so much to march through on the history of this day. May 4th, 1878. Thomas Edison's phonograph shown for the first time at the Grand Opera House in New York, New York. And in a way, uh, the way I'm communicating with you today has its roots back to that great uh, wizard of Menlo Park, New Jersey. May 4th, 1886, the Haymarket Riot in Chicago. 
uh, an incendiary bomb uh, thrown at police lines that had just begun to disperse a, a meeting and rally that had been ongoing between 600 and 1,000 labor activists. The efforts were led, the protest was led by a, 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 an anarchist wing, strong in the German community. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, newspapers uh, uh, were primarily German newspapers promoting the, uh, the rally on May 4th. The labor movement had in 1884 declared that by May 1st, 1886, uh, the eight-hour working day should have the force of law. And throughout the country, uh, uh, labor activities were held. Uh, uh, a great strike occurred on May 1st, 1886, when that uh, uh, demand was not met. And so by May 4th, after having had an activity at the uh, McCormick Reaper facility in Chicago, and the uh, uh, a labor man being killed during that uh, incident, by the 4th, the following day, uh, it was quite an incendiary atmosphere, and uh, I don't use that word lightly, the, the bomb that was thrown, Shots fired. Uh, some claim that it was so disorganized that some of the police officers killed by firearms may have been killed by their fellow officers. Uh, others stating that no, that firing was coming from the uh, labor activists themselves. Uh, there were, in the subsequent investigation, the raids, uh, nearly all of them conducted without constitutional protections for the properties and persons being raided, uh, the newspapers and, and such. And, and it was discovered that there were bomb-making uh, uh, paraphernalia. One man skipped the country, and most historians do believe that that man was indeed the, the man who threw the bomb. But everyone from the man who sp uh, last spoke on the dais to a couple of the newspaper men who had printed the flyers to get the uh, labor activists to gather, uh, eight men were put on trial, uh, all found guilty. Uh, most historians say that the, the prosecutor, the judge, uh, that the entire process uh, was not a process worthy of uh, uh, the title of justice. Of the eight men convicted, uh, I do believe that uh, the governor at the time, Governor Oglesby, uh, all eight condemned to death. Um, uh, one man, I'm sorry, uh, convicted to a 15-year sentence. Uh, two other men, uh, the sentence commuted to, uh, to life imprisonment for two. Uh, one man committed suicide uh, with a blasting cap the night before the uh, uh, the execution occurred, four individuals hung on November 11th, 1887. And uh, they became uh, heroes of the labor movement. Now, I had stated on May 1st that I had the sense that our Labor Day, the first Monday in September, was created in great part to move away from the May 1st activity of uh, uh, the labor parades. And uh, what I've read in my history is that actually because these hay market uh, uh, martyrs to the labor cause had been pushing for the eight hour day, at that same time they had written and the uh, Second International, the Congress of the International Workers was held. Uh, the, uh, the men, by the way, marched off to the gallows, sang the Marseille uh, as they marched to the gallows, the International Labor Song. So eventually, May Day did take hold in Europe to a great, uh, greater extent and was still the source of labor activities here in the United States. But we, we did move. Uh, many states uh, moved to that first Monday in September, as did uh, Congress eventually in the 1890s, I think 1896, and Canada as well, celebrating its September civic holiday as Labor Day, the first Monday in September. Theodore Roosevelt uh, would write about uh, the Haymarket riot. Subsequently, in 1894, when Eugene Debs and 
Others led the uh, strike at the Pullman, a great railroad strike uh, originating at the Pullman factory on the south side of Chicago, now a national monument by a presidential uh, order. And uh, it was Cleveland that sent in the National Guard, a great deal of violence there at the, uh, the Pullman strikes. This again from uh, our good friend Daniel Ruddy, his uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, History of the United States. Uh, uh, again, most of this taken from letters, uh, some perhaps from public statements. A little bit of Theodore Roosevelt. What he was greatly upset at was the, the subsequent governor, Altgeld, uh, very um, uh, connected to the German uh, community and the labor community, uh, seen as a labor hero. Interesting, in Lincoln Park, still during Theodore Roosevelt's lifetime in 1915, the artist Gutzon uh, uh, Borglum uh, cast a, a statue of Altgeld in Lincoln Park, and it's a heroic sort of hero of labor fellow for he, uh, there were uh, those two men that had their life sentences. Uh, Altgeld uh, uh, commuted or uh, uh, absolved those men, uh, let them out of prison. Uh, here's Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, the demagogue in all his forms is as characteristic an evil of a free society as the courtier is of a despotism. And the attitude of many of our public men at the time of the great strike in July 1894 was such as to call down on their heads the hearty condemnation of every American who wishes well to his country. It would be difficult to overestimate the damage done by the example and action of a man like Governor Altgeld of Illinois. The governor who began his career by pardoning anarchists and whose most noteworthy feat since was his bitter and undignified but fortunately futile campaign against the election of the upright judge who sentenced the anarchists is the foe of every true American and is the foe particularly of every honest working man. Had it not been for the admirable action of the federal government, Chicago would have seen a repetition of what occurred during the Paris Commune. President Cleveland and Attorney General only acted with equal wisdom and courage, and the danger was averted. The completeness of the victory of the federal authorities representing law and order has perhaps been one reason why it was so soon forgotten. It is urgently necessary to keep before the minds of our people the great danger of permitting any growth of that unhealthy sentimentality and morbid class consciousness, which in their extreme form find vent in sympathy or excuse for the scoundrelly utterances of Debs, which condone the action of Altgeld, which are half-hearted in condemning or even faintly excusing the Haymarket bomb throwers. The authorities have to put down mob violence, although the interests directly threatened may be those of a very wicked corporation. I uh, am so very uh, glad to have the words of Theodore Roosevelt uh, available to us and Glad for the small role I might play in bringing these words to life for you. And if I may, a, a, a couple of uh, uh, quick readings and then uh, um, a reading at a little bit of length from 1912. But uh, on this date, May 4th, 1903, the great tour through the Western states. Uh, this is from an address at Denver, Colorado, May 4th, 1903. Mr. Governor. Mr. Mayor, and you, my fellow citizens, Colorado has certain special interests which it shares with the group of states immediately around it. 
to my mind, one of the best pieces of legislation put upon the statute books of the national government of recent years was the Irrigation Act, an act under which we declare it to be the national policy that exactly as care is to be taken of the harbors along the lower courses of the rivers, so in their upper courses care is to be taken by the nation of the irrigation work to be done in connection with them. Under that act, a beginning has been made in Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, Nevada, and the territory of Arizona. There is bound to be disappointment here and there where people have built hopes without a quite sufficient warranty of fact behind it. But good will surely come at once and well nigh immeasurable good in the future from the policy which has thus been begun. In Colorado, two thirds of your products come from irrigated farms. And four years ago, those products already surpassed $15 million. With the aid of the government, far more can be done in the future even than has been done in the past. The object of the law is to provide small irrigated farms to actual settlers, to actual homemakers. The land is given away ultimately in small tracts under the terms of the Homestead Act, the settlers repaying the cost of bringing water to the lands in 10 annual payments, and lands now in private ownership can be watered in small tracts by similar payments. But the law forbids the furnishing of water to large tracts, and the aim of the government is to rigidly prevent the acquisition of large rights for speculative purposes. The purpose of the law was, and that purpose is being absolutely carried out, to promote settlement and cultivation of small farms carefully tilled. Water made available under the terms of this law becomes appurtenant under the law to the land and cannot be disposed of without it. And thus monopoly and speculation in this vitally important commodity are prevented, or at least their evil effects minimized so as the law or the administration of the law can bring that end about. This is the great factor in future success. The policy is a policy of encouragement to the homemaker, to the man who comes to establish his home, to bring up his children here as a citizen of the Commonwealth, and his welfare is guarded by the union of the water and the land. The government cannot deal with large numbers individually. We have encouraged the formation of associations of water users, of cultivators of the soil in small tracts. The ultimate ownership and control of the irrigation works will pass away from the government hands into the hands of those users, those homemakers, who through their offices do the necessary business of their associations. The aim of the government is to give locally the ultimate control of water distributed and to leave neighborhood disputes to be settled locally. And that should be so far as it is possible. The law protects vested rights. It prevents conflict with established laws or institutions. But of course, it is important that the legislatures of the states should cooperate with the national government. When the works are constructed to utilize the waters now, wasted, happy and prosperous homes will flourish where 20 years ago it would have seemed impossible that a man could live. It is a great national measure of benefit. And while, as I say, it is primarily to benefit the people of the mountain states and of the Great Plains, yet it will ultimately benefit the whole community. For my fellow countrymen, you can never afford to forget for one moment that in the long run, anything that is of benefit to one part of our republic is of necessity of benefit to all the republic. The creation of new homes upon desert lands means greater prosperity for Colorado and the Rocky Mountain states. 
And inevitably, the greater prosperity means greater prosperity for Eastern manufacturers, for Southern cotton growers, for all our people throughout the nation. What a splendid little speech in favor of the Newlands Reclamation Act of 1902. Uh, my own understanding of the history was that in later years, this concept of the revolving repayment back by the uh, farmer, rancher, and settler, uh, that uh, that was dispensed with, uh, that uh, there weren't as much uh, paid back to the, it was supposed to be a revolving fund so that we could continue to do more irrigation works. But eventually those benefiting from the water rights uh, did not uh, uh, continue to pay for those water rights in the fashion that would have fully funded the Irrigation Act. I think if you go back to Theodore Roosevelt's dedication of Roosevelt Dam operating in 1911, you'll find some of his commentary there about how he wasn't uh, quite pleased with how things had gone uh, under William Howard Taft with regards to uh, the maintenance of uh, the act as originally intended. May 4th, 1904, so a year following those comments in Colorado, President Theodore Roosevelt, uh, with the prospect of election in his own right, uh, was able uh, through his representatives in Panama on this date, following the deliberations of the U.S. Isthmian Canal Commission and uh, the United States Congress, uh, uh, we took possession of the Panama Canal on this date in 1904, literally being presented the keys uh, to the buildings in the canal zone by the new Panama Canal Company, the French company that was the uh, second large French company to attempt the uh, Panama Canal. Really, the new Panama Canal Company existed simply to try to uh, sell themselves out from under the uh, obligation, trying to complete uh, something of which they uh, had failed miserably. So glad for American intervention, uh, negotiations with Colombia, eventually the recognizing late in 1903 of the new breakaway Republic of Panama, and then on this date in 1904, Second Lieutenant Mark Brooke of the United States Army Corps of Engineers in Panama City, Panama, at the hotel there, which was the headquarters of the New Panama Canal Company, he received the keys to the buildings, a full list of inventory of what was in the buildings, the equipment, and the receipt was executed in triplicate in English, Spanish, and French. May 4th, 1912, uh, the uh, year of the progressive campaign eventually, not yet the uh, end of the contest for the Republican nomination. And Theodore Roosevelt speaking out against boss rule, uh, the dominance of our, uh, of our political system by those uh, uh, big political bosses at the state and municipal level. Uh, today's program being brought to you, brought to you by uh, Dakota Coffee Company. Dakota Coffee Company, our favorite coffee in Wapaton, North Dakota. Bully. Thank you for that uh, indulgence. Boss ruler leadership now. Here's a special note. I've mentioned I, I like to do Theodore Roosevelt speeches in their entirety. Uh, so as not to edit out uh, anything uh, that might be controversial today or, or might show that uh, indeed this man that was Mount Rushmore worthy actually had feet made of clay. Uh, this is an interesting note uh, as this was published by the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Association. Uh, uh, in the decade after Theodore Roosevelt's passing. There's a footnote here after the title and an asterisk and down below. This is the speech at Baltimore, Maryland on May 4th, 1912. The passage regarding quote-unquote dictation is in part from a speech delivered at Detroit, Michigan, March 30th, 1912. 
and is substituted for a similar passage less cogently expressed in the speech delivered at Baltimore. So I must apologize on occasion for a missed word uh, 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 or a, a, a lack of emphasis. I feel that I may be reading in a way that is not as cogently expressed as the original, but I, I, I find some solace in the fact that these editors have found uh, that it was uh, necessary to make a small edit to make uh, former President Theodore Roosevelt's, Colonel Roosevelt's uh, speech in Baltimore, May 4th, 1912, more cogent for the reader. I do not think that for over half a century we have seen as sharp a lineup between the people and the bosses as in this campaign. Almost everywhere we go in this union, we find ourselves confronted by a solid phalanx, including 95% or over of the old-time political leaders, 99% of all of those very wealthy men who think that they ought to have a little more than is coming to them under the principle of the square deal, and including, I am sorry to say, about 90% of the silk-stocking element in every newspaper that can be either directly or indirectly subsidized or controlled by the powers that prey. Prey, by the way, is spelled P-R-E-Y. We have not got anybody with us at all except the people. And I ask you, the people of Maryland, on Monday next, to speak so that the boss and the great sinister creature who stands behind the boss everywhere throughout the United States shall realize that there is another state where the people control themselves, where their votes cannot be delivered by the federal office holders or the professional politicians who do their bidding. Now, friends, just one word as to what I said about the silk stocking and the multi-millionaire. I want you to understand me. I have nothing but the highest respect for either the silk stocking or the multi-millionaire who does not ask any odds and who plays fairly. And I think I give expression to the feelings of the bulk of my fellow countrymen when I say that we have not the slightest feeling against the successful man who has succeeded by honesty and ably serving the people. We have not the slightest feeling against the silk-stocking or multi-millionaire if he remembers that he is a man first and a silk-stocking next or a multi-millionaire next. I am sure I speak your sentiments when I say that we will protect in his rights every man of wealth. He is entitled to be treated just as well as anyone else, but not better. He is entitled to his vote, but he is not entitled to get anyone else's vote in an improper way. If he will come out and stand shoulder to shoulder with the rest of us on his merits and not ask any odds and not try to play tricks we will treat him just as squarely as anyone else. And we would be ashamed of ourselves if we did not. That type of man ought to be with us. If he is not with us, it is merely because he is misled and does not understand that we are really striving to create the political and industrial conditions in which his children and grandchildren will be happier and better. We are for that type of man. We are against only the kind of wealthy man who has made his money not by serving the public, but by swindling the public. We are against only that kind of wealthy man who gets what he is not entitled to by owning representatives of states or national legislatures, 
or by owning other politicians in public life. We are against the alliance of the crooked boss and the crooked financier, an alliance which has been responsible for nine-tenths of the corruption in American political life. Friends, the other day Mr. Taft said that I went about the country preaching class hatred and discontent. I preach hatred of but one class, and that is the class of crooks. When I say that I preach hatred, I mean that I preach hatred of the crookedness. I do not preach hatred of the crook. If the crook is a criminal, I will put him in the penitentiary. But I do it because it is my duty. I would not do it because I hated him. I might feel sorry for him and yet feel that he ought to be put in the penitentiary. And for a lot of men who have been guilty of crookedness, I feel an infinite pity and contempt rather than hatred. You take most of the bosses. I do not hate them at all. I want to get them back into private life. But it is not a case of my hating them. I do not hate them. It is not a case of my hating them. It is merely that I do not want them to govern us. If they will go into private life and become almost anything, I do not care what, my best wishes will go with them. It is merely that I regard them as out of place when they try to do our governing for us. I preach hatred of no class of men. I preach hatred of crookedness. I preach hatred of crookedness in politics. I preach hatred of crookedness in business. And above all, I preach hatred of that type of sinister agreement between politics and business, which corrupts business and tenfold over corrupts our public life. Mr. Taft says I preach discontent. So I do. I preach discontent with unrighteousness. I preach discontent with the standard of morality which permits a man to act in public life as he would be ashamed to act in private life. I preach discontent with the standard of morality which permits a man to act in business in a fashion which he would be ashamed to go home and repeat in his own house. I preach discontent with the kind of man who keeps his conscience in separate compartments, who has one conscience on Sunday and another for the six other days of the week, who has one conscience when he meets his friends and another conscience when in public life or in business life he deals with the general public. In other words, friends, I preach the gospel of discontent only as regards those things with which we must be discontented if we are to continue to be honest Americans. Now, friends, our doctrines are simple. First, we believe in the right of the people to rule. Our opponents, the stand patters, always speak of us as the people on July 4th, but when we want a direct primary or something of that kind, we then suffer an instant charge and become the mob. Now, all I ask for us collectively is what each of us expects for himself individually. Any man who will consciously, conscientiously study our history is bound to come to the conclusion that on the whole, while the American people will sometimes make mistakes, yet they make them far less frequently than any set of outsiders who try to govern them will make them. Not only can we govern ourselves better than anyone else can govern us, but we can only go forward on condition that we govern ourselves. I do not want you to take this on my say-so or treat it as a mere expression from the platform. I want you to think for yourselves. 
I want any man interested or any woman interested in humanitarian legislation to think which legislature you would find it easier to get a bill through regulating the hours of labor of women in factories, a legislature owned by a boss or a legislature responsive to the people. Try the experiment yourselves of getting a law through to forbid the working of children in canneries and see whether you will find it easier to get it through a legislature controlled by big bosses or little bosses or through a legislature where the people themselves elect their representatives and where the representatives feel they are responsible to the people. Nine times out of ten, friends, you will find that every piece of legislation for social and industrial reforms has come out of a legislature in which the members feel a real sense of responsibility to the people. I am not speaking as the result of mere closet study. I am speaking as the result of my experience in life, of my experience in the New York legislature and as governor of that state, as the result of my experience with Congress when I was president. If you surrender yourselves, your government, into the hands of a boss, you may make up your minds that he will govern you not in your way, but in his. And I want to say this much, that my sympathies go out to him in that matter. If you have not the manhood to govern yourselves, I have mighty small sympathy with any complaint as to the conduct of those who would govern you. If people submit themselves to a boss when they forfeit all right to complain, when that man governs them badly, as his nature bids him to do. And now, friends, I want to discuss two of the accusations made against me. I cannot discuss them all because I don't know any accusation which has not been made against me. But it is sometimes alleged that as president, I was dictatorial. And it is sometimes stated that I was of an unconstitutional habit of mind. Now, in the first place, as to the dictatorial business, I do not think that the complaint has had much effect except among the old women of our own sex. But I would like you to remember for yourselves just to whom it was that I, on any occasion, tried to dictate and just how I dictated. You? Not a bit of it. Never in any instance was there so much as an accusation that I was trying to dictate to the people. The accusation was that I tried to dictate to the senators and congressmen well, mind you, the only way I tried to dictate to the senators and congressmen was by getting the case put as plainly and as vividly as possible before the people, and then letting them do the dictating if they chose. I did not myself dictate or try to dictate to any senator or congressman. All I did was try to put the issue squarely before the people, and then if I could convince them that I was right, they of their own accord, if they so chose, could bring pressure to bear upon the senators and congressmen. Ask any senator or congressman who really represented the people, and you will find that the man never was dictated to by me, and always felt simply that he and I were working together toward the common end of faithfully representing those whom Abraham Lincoln called our masters, the American people. It was only the senator or congressman who represented and obeyed the boss and the special interest, and not the people, who had anything to fear from me. The only species of dictation I ever used was what is implied in rousing the American people to make their will effective on their representatives. I have never had, I have not now, and I never can or will have one particle of strength except the measure of strength that is given me by your support. When I was president, the minute that at any point I lost your support, then, whether I was right or you were, 
The effect was just the same. I lost all power. The minute that I failed to have not merely your tepid goodwill, but your earnest purpose behind the policies I advocated, I could not put one of those policies through Congress. The minute I failed to have your earnest and cordial backing, I lost every particle of power to accomplish anything. Nobody knew better than I did the fact that I had not one particle of power except the power that you gave me. Now, friends, consciously, I have never advised you to do anything that I did not think was not only for your interest, but right. And I never shall. And now, friends, our opponents accuse me of talking anarchy. Has what I have said to you this evening sounded like anarchy? Hasn't it been common sense and common justice? Decency in politics and decency in business. Anarchy? That is the only kind of antidote to anarchy that there is in this country. Now, friends, I will quite quit the dictatorship argument and just for one moment discuss the statement that I have an unconstitutional type of mind. I am going to give you two examples, one which happened before I was president and one which happened while I was president. In 1898, in the Spanish War, I had a regiment in Cuba. And after the first fight, there was a break in the cracker line, and we got short of food and had nothing but salt, pork, and hardtack. It was in the tropics, and I wanted to get my men something to eat. So I got 40 of them together, pretty husky boys, they were rough riders, and I marched them down to a point on the beach where they were landing stores. They were being landed with a good bit of confusion, and nobody knew what was there. I found a commissary officer, and he asked what I wanted. I told him I wanted what I could get. He told me to look around, and I did. And pretty soon I found a lot of beans on the shore, about 1,100 pounds. So I came back and told him I wanted 1,100 pounds of beans. Then he got out a little pamphlet of regulations, something that read like Division 3, Subdivision 3, Section X, and he showed me that beans were only allowed for the officer's mess. And I told him when we got down to hardtack, everybody ate alike in the regiment from the colonel down. He said he was very sorry that I could have the beans for the officers, but I could not have them for the men. I said that would not do. He went away and thought about it for a little while and then came back with a requisition for 1,100 pounds of beans for the officer's mess. Come, Colonel, he said to me, your officers can't eat 1,100 pounds of beans. I said, you don't know what appetites they have. He said, well, I think I will have to send that requisition to Washington. I said, certainly, if you give me the beans. He said, I think they will hold you, uh, hold it up out of your salary. I said, then, then, then we will call it quits. You give me the beans and let Washington hold it up out of my salary, which they did. But I called that a good working compromise. I got the beans. Now, I do not regard that as having acted unconstitutionally in that case. I would have felt ashamed of myself. I would have felt that I was an unfit colonel for that regiment, and I would not have expected those men to stand by me and follow me if I had not made up my mind to get what food they needed. I counted for them, and if I had not, I would have been afraid to tell you the antidote, the anecdote. What I did when I was president was whenever I found Uncle Sam needed 
1,100 pounds of beans, I got them for him. I never violated the law, but if I found that the people needed to have something done, and there was no provision forbidding, forbidding it in the law, I gave the people the benefit of the doubt. Of course, now and then I had to act a little suddenly. You see, I spent part of my early manhood in the short grass country of the West, in the cow country, where it used to be said you probably would not need a gun at all, but if you did need it, you would need it dreadful quick. In every case, I tried to act as I thought the bulk of the people would have wished me to act. I never did anything against the law, and I never did anything which would not square itself with the ordinary, average, decent man's sense of right and wrong. If I could, I would consult everybody beforehand. I would consult the people beforehand. And if I could not, I would act and then see if I could not get the people to agree with me. Now, the best instance of that was in connection with the Panama Canal. When I became president, I found the negotiations for the Panama Canal going on with great dignity as they had gone on for the previous 70 years. The Isthmus had been discovered four centuries before by the Spaniards, and they at once said that it would be a splendid thing to put a canal across it. There had been four centuries of conversation upon the subject, and I came to the conclusion it had better be translated into action. I did my level best to get Columbia to agree with us. I tried to treat her more than justly, more than generously. I tried to do everything I could for her, but I was not going to have anyone hold up Uncle Sam. Finally, I came to the conclusion that to negotiate further with Columbia was like about trying to nail currant jelly to the wall. You cannot do it. It is not the fault of the nail, it is the fault of the jelly. So when, when those two courses were open to me, if I had followed the precedent, say of President Buchanan, I would have sent an able report to Congress. Congress would have held a series of masterly debates on the able report, and we would have had half a century more of conversation and the canal would be 50 years in the future. Instead of doing that, I took the isthmus and started the canal, and I let Congress debate me instead of the canal. And it proved a first-class working compromise. We got the canal, and Congress got the debate. And instead of debating the canal, which would have been a calamity, they debated me, which did not make any difference to anybody, and at least of all to me. The canal will be finished in a couple of years, and the debate about me goes fitfully on, and I do not think it will be finished until long after I am dead. Now, friends, I feel that so far from having acted unconstitutionally about the Panama Canal, I acted the way every president worth his salt ought to act. I hold that the president is put into his office by the people to work for them, to work in their interests, and that it is his duty to go forward and not merely to furnish excellent reasons why he should mark time and fall slightly backward. I hold that the duty of the president is to uphold the Constitution and the laws, but to remember that the preamble of the Constitution recites as the reasons for its adoption by the people that the purpose is to secure justice and work for the general welfare. And I hold that the president and all other public servants of the people are derelict to their duties unless they do so handle themselves in public office, is to advance the cause of justice, to do all they can for the general welfare of the people of the United States. Well, that's it. Uh, uh, that published in Social Justice and Popular Rule, Essays, Addresses, and Public Statements Relating to the Progressive Movement, 1910 through 1916 by Theodore Roosevelt, Charles and Scribner's and Son, 
1925 publication. A little bit of the cover text there. Give you a sense of, of that. Very interesting. Uh, the conclusion, the, the idea that there's constitutional authority in the preamble, that the uh, concept of securing justice and uh, provide for the um, uh, general welfare of the people of the United States brings up some fascinating conversations for us to have later on Teddy Talk. My uh, apologies for the uh, misfiring uh, for the first guns of uh, the Battle of Oswego. We'll conclude Theodore Roosevelt's uh, literary explanation of uh, the implications of the Battle of Oswego, and a little bit of Army-Naval rivalry that uh, comes. I'll be better prepared tomorrow. Have a great day. We certainly enjoyed the weekend here in Medora. Good to see uh, not only the geese and the deer, but more people. Here's for a little more rain and the great company and fellowship that we enjoy here and back in your hometown. We'll see you tomorrow on Teddy Talks. Uh, coming ahead, I've got to admit, uh, a little uh, off schedule, uh, knowing that we'll visit the Grand Canyon and accept the Nobel Peace Prize and have a lot of good times here. We'll see you next time on Teddy Talks.